Well, good morning, church. As always, it's such a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, words always just simply fail me. They cannot and do not adequately express just how deeply blessed I feel to be with you all every single week that I'm here, uh, being able to share the gospel of grace with you all. Uh, and what a privilege it is to be with you here again on this very last Sunday of, of the year. Um, this morning we'll be coming around to Psalm 126. And Psalm 126 itself is a very peculiar psalm because in many ways, just at a personal level, it's very special to me. It's one of those psalms that I just keep on returning to throughout various seasons of my own life. And I'm sure for many of us, as we read Psalm 126, you'll pick up on the familiarity of the psalm. It's something that is so familiar to us, but there's so much power here that I want to express as we uh, read this psalm together here in just a brief moment. Um, now, as Derek and I were planning the uh, the winter and the spring uh, uh, sermon uh, series going forward, I figured it would be really important to to kind of tune in to this psalm in particular, because this psalm itself, in many ways, is a psalm that is purposed to be very reflective by nature, but also celebratory. It kind of stands at the crossroads of both being uh, looking back at history, but also looking forward to the future. I think it's a very fitting psalm for the very turning point of 2020 into 2021. Now, I know for Psalm 126, again, this psalm is very special for myself, and again, for many of you, it probably is as well. And for me in particular, this very psalm has carried me through many uh, very intense seasons of suffering, to be quite frank with you all, but also seasons of rejoicing alike. All kinds of seasons, whether it be the most extreme or the most uh, enjoyable seasons, and I know it's interesting because in our own culture, in our own day and age, we have a tendency in our American culture to try to euthanize pain and suffering. We tend to write off suffering as if it's something that just kind of comes and goes in life, as opposed to really dealing with it and looking at it face forward as God calls us to. For all of the benefits that modern psychology has brought upon us in the last hundred years or so, that has taught us how to better understand ourselves and how to better understand our interactions with other people, it in many ways has failed us in regard to how we relate with God himself. God himself. Which is our very chief and most vital and important relationship, of course, in all of life. And so in many ways, this psalm, Psalm 126, prepares us and even teaches us how to look at suffering and how to process both joy and suffering alike in light of God's blessings, both God's blessings in times gone by, but also blessings that are yet awaiting his people. And so as we approach this psalm this morning, I invite you, if you haven't already, to turn with me to Psalm 126 as we look at God's word. Psalm 126 in many ways is bottled up for as short as this psalm is, only six verses in particular, is bottled up with a kind of sweet refreshment to our souls. And so as we, figuratively speaking, open up the, the bottle cap of this psalm, my prayer is that we would drink deeply of the nectar of God's grace, the sweetness and the goodness of God that we see this very morning in Psalm 126, and that we would find our hope in the midst of whatever we might be going through personally in this very season to be treasured up in him ultimately. And so Psalm 126, as we approach this, says the following to us, God's people. Psalm 126, starting in verse 1. 
when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears, they shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of God, given to us in love, forever faithful and true. And with this in mind, let's come before him in prayer. God, we thank you that as we come to your word, as a people who are blessed by being in union with Jesus, but also as those people who experience suffering and pain, we recognize that we find ourselves at a crossroads. We find that we ourselves are people who have mixed emotions so often here in this life. Having just come out of Christmas, a time of rejoicing and celebration at the very birth of Christ, and yet also recognizing the weariness that our souls have also faced, even over, I'm sure, this very last year. And so, God, as we are a conflicted people, people both met by sufferings and rejoicings alike, may we see in this very psalm you as the answer to both. You as the one who uh, carries us step by step, as Christian was just leading us in worship, step by step from one degree of glory to another through this life. So God, may we see this to be true. And as we expound upon your word here in this very hour, would you use this time to refresh us, to enliven our souls, to whet our appetite for the things of you once again, O Lord. God, we ask as we approach your word that you would use... uh, the servant of yours as simply a vessel of mercy in your hands, an instrument for your own purposes. May I simply get out of the way, and may you, by your very Holy Spirit, minister and preach to our very souls through your word. Uh, For your word is life, and it is true. So we pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, church, as I've uh, shared this all with you before, I tend to be a fairly nostalgic person. Uh, someone who tends to be both reflective and yet equally optimistic, or so I like to think at least. It's kind of a weird mixture, but uh, that's just kind of how I've been uh, put together personality-wise. I tend to carry this uh, reflective yet also hopeful disposition, one who also, though, carries a sense of, of deeply held principles and convictions and sees a clear connection between how those principles of years of people who have gone by are still purposed and designed to be carried out in the future. I recognize the, the value of history, but also have a forward-thinking mind, so to speak. I'm sure many of us can probably relate with that. People who love history yet also are forward-thinking in how they look at life. And I think in many ways this is why Psalm 126 resonates with me so deeply. It has both a past and a futuristic component to it. It has both this sense of being, uh, this, this connection between God's past blessings in view here, but also the future blessings that are to come in verses 4 through 6, the last half of the passage. And the psalmist displays this, this contrast between both past in verses 1 through 3 and future in verses 4 through 6 through the use of 
what we might know of in literature as a kind of contrast between past and future, between light or dark, between sowing or reaping, things of that essence. The psalmist uses this idea of contrast to illustrate this idea. Now, for those of you who might be into the arts of various kinds, whether it be music or photography or literature itself, I'm sure you understand the importance of contrast. Uh, For instance, how do artists add a layer of depth to a good music album? Well, they play songs in both major and minor keys. How do authors accentuate uh, wonderful ideas in terms of literature? Well, they use both images that juxtapose one another, such, such as light or dark or good or evil, things of that nature. How do photo editors enliven their photos and bring them to life, so to speak? Well, they increase the contrast between otherwise competing yet complementary colors. Well, in this psalm, our very psalm, Psalm 126, the psalmist intends to use contrast, sowing and reaping, rejoicing and grieving, all kinds of contrast to bring about a certain layer of depth that, ironically enough, the simplest of words in our language gets across. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our psalm this morning stands in the middle of a series of psalms that... um, is part of what we know as the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent. This takes place in Psalms uh, 120 through 134 in particular. And the Songs of Ascent were actually designed and purposed to be a kind of unifying network of psalms for the people of Israel. Fifteen psalms that were designed for the people as they would come and gather from all around the known nations of the world to worship in the holy city of Jerusalem. The songs of ascent in and of themselves were actually not meant to be sung in isolation, though, but rather in unison and in harmony with other people as they gathered from around the nations. It was meant to be a gathering kind of form of, uh, of psalmody that as people would come one by one or with their own families, they would meet up with other families, other believers along the way and join together with them. Well, in the same way, this very psalm, nestled right in the middle of the Songs of Ascent, is purposed to bring people together, using both these ideas of suffering and rejoicing alike, otherwise competing themes, but things that everybody can relate to as the people of God. And just as the people of Israel were called to worship, they were called to worship out of the midst of their own suffering or even out of the midst of their own rejoicing alike, and to come and to be both reflective, yet also celebratory by nature. Coming out of a place of deep and utter reflection, but also rejoicing alike. Just as the people of Israel were called not to stay in isolation, but rather to be gathered, however, the truth of Psalm 126 is not meant to be understood isolated from the context of what was going on in the greater light of the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent were meant to be preparatory, leading people from a place of wherever they were coming from, from all around the nations once again, from a place of introspection and and longing for what the Lord would do as he would revive their souls there as they worshiped together as one body. And it was meant to actually lead them on in that journey up to the Temple Mount. Well, in many ways, looking at the context, um, what's interesting 
is that uh, it takes place in a somewhat generic sense, uh, this idea of restoring our fortunes. But it came to be known as a psalm that had everything to do in time with the exile of Israel. The exile that took place in the late 6th century BC as the Israelites who had disobeyed against the Lord their God and literally bowed the knee to the false gods, Baal and other false gods, who had been thrown into exile and and cast aside by God for their disobedience and their uh, breaking of the covenant and disavowing themselves from God. They found themselves in exile and in a place of longing for restoration. And so this psalm, Psalm 126, takes place in not just the sense of um, a desire of wanting to be restored, but a restoration from physical, real pain and suffering that they had already gone through. Psalm 126 was actually purposed in many ways, as many commentators agree, to actually be reflective for the people, to recognize that they had been exiles and they had also, though, been brought out of captivity back into a place of wholeness and peace there in Israel in due time. But while in Babylon, in that exile, in the greater Assyrian uh, empire and culture, their livelihoods, their liberties, and their liturgies had all been taken captive. They all had been stripped away from them during that season of hardship after, again, centuries of disobedience to God himself. And yet it was in that time of suffering and pain that was even in many ways a direct result of their sin that the Lord, in his own providence, continued to show kindness to an undeserving people. Kindness that was meant to lead them to repentance, as Romans 2 points out. Kindness that was meant to lead them to a place of recognizing his covenantal faithfulness and love that he himself would fulfill on behalf of his people. And so through the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, among others, the Lord declared to them in the midst of their exile, in the midst of their wandering away from God, God's unfailing and continued love toward his own people, while simultaneously also warning them of the danger that sin had pronounced over them. In essence, the gospel of grace was proclaimed to them, both grace toward sinners by means of a mediator who was to come, a better covenant keeper, but also uh, a warning of judgment for sin, which no lawbreaker in himself or herself could ever maintain. Here the Israelites saw the sense of tension that they themselves had failed in maintaining the law of God, And yet God himself would show grace through someone outside of themselves. In essence, redemption had been foretold to them, even in the midst of their exile. And restoration was promised. And so Psalm 126 heavily leans upon this idea of restoration. Now, contextually speaking, in time, the psalm, uh, again, as I noted, became uh, directly associated with that Babylonian exile. And so, if you have your Bibles in front of you, I'd invite you to look again at verse 1. In some of our English translations, it says this, that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Other English translations might say something like, when the Lord returned the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Fortunes, captive ones, there seems to be a little bit of a textual discrepancy, so to speak, going on right there. Uh, So what's going on? 
Uh, if you caught the difference there between fortunes and uh, captive ones, you might think, okay, those two words seem very unrelated. So what's going on here? Is there a difference? If there is, then what's the whole point of that? Well, the Hebrew text itself is kind of a play on words. The Hebrew text itself actually has this idea of, of saying, well, when the Lord returned the ones or the things that had been turned back, we were like those who dream. When the Lord returned the returned ones, the ones who had turned away, when he returned those, as confusing as that sounds, we were like those who dream. See, in many ways, when, uh, when we look at that text, uh, it can be a little confusing in how do we translate that. And so in the Greek, in the Greek Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they understood this to be referring to the captive ones of Zion, the ones who had been turned away, who had been thrown away from Israel, the turned back ones. Whereas uh, a lot of our translations now will say, when the Lord returned the fortunes of Zion, meaning the things that had been turned away from us. Uh, either way you splice it, whether it be the turned back ones, the captives, or the turned back things, the fortunes that were lost, there's still this unifying truth that the Lord in due time brought back both the captive ones of Zion, but also all that they had lost. All that they had lost. Ultimately, both are true because God himself proved himself to be the very one who is the restorer of us, his people, but is also the one who will indeed return in abundant measure all that we ourselves have lost as believers. And so though we will experience suffering here in this life, we have nothing short of the very riches of Christ. The fullness of the excellencies, the spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, as Ephesians 1 points out, for us to tap into, so to speak, reserved for us, never to run out of stock, like we might have experienced around Christmas time, trying to order presents online and having it not delivered on time. These things, though, are to be tapped into. These spiritual blessings that attend us in our moments of weakness are right there already preserved and reserved for us and to be asked for in prayer as we come before the throne of grace by our God who loves to dispense them in his perfect timing to us as his people. And so in our moments of suffering or weakness or trials or tribulations, we do best to run to Christ, Christ who is the fountain, the sweet well of love. As the Scottish Presbyterian pastor Samuel Rutherford, one of my favorite theologians of years gone by, once told his people who were suffering at a distance while he couldn't be with them in person, he told them this. He said, scar not at suffering for Christ, for Christ hath a chair, a cushion, and a sweet peace for sufferers. In other words, his is a sweet place to find rest in moments of weakness. And so this psalm begins with both an historical backdrop of freedom from past enslavement that we saw in verses 1 and following, 1 through 3 in particular, yet also an ardent hope that God is certainly most faithful and capable of restoring to the uttermost. See, in recounting God's uh, past faithfulness to Israel in years gone by, as they had said, the Lord has done great things for them, The people of Israel also recognize that the Lord is certainly most able to restore to the uttermost his people in the present time. 
And, and though these people had been for a time uh, numbed by their sufferings and the evils that they had faced, they learned in time to recognize that God's deliverance, which was displayed before their very eyes, was what would get them through the hardest of seasons. And so, like waking up from a deep sleep, it says this, that they were essentially made to behold the mighty hand of God who exercises authority and power over their very lives and before the very eyes of the nations even. Consider verses 2 and 3 again, which say this, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And so it's here in this psalm that we read of Israel's excitement for the things of the Lord. They had been a people who had become numb to the things of God and had turned their backs on him, and yet by his providential hand, by his own kindness, had brought them back to a place of awe and worship, understanding and and enjoying his kindness toward them. And so essentially, their when, uh, capital W when, so to speak, in verse 1, turned into their then. When the Lord had done this, then this was our result. When the Lord showed his kindness toward us, then we were filled with exuberance that could not be contained. When the Lord, who had brought out the captive ones and even restored our fortunes, had released us again from slavery to freedom to worship him, even where God's dwelling place was there at Mount Zion, God's holy hill, the Lord, in essence, ended up restoring their sacred interest in him and in his ways. And he revived their public exercise of worship, the very worship of him alone. And so in essence, liberty had been proclaimed to the captive ones, and the news of such liberation eventually found its way to the ears of all the listening nations around Israel. And so for Israel, the things that had been suffered became things that were then learned. And this brings us to uh, the second half of our psalm this morning, in verses 4 through 6, kind of the futuristic sense of God's blessing of his people. Again, we saw the past blessings in verses 1 through 3, but now we're about to see God's future blessings that are in store in verses 4 through 6. And so this is in many ways a turning point in our psalm. For though God had already shown favor to his people, they recognized that their earthly deliverances, their even being brought back out of exile from uh, being held as, as slaves and captives in Babylon, was not the end-all, be-all. Even the restoring of all of their fortunes that it talks about earlier in verse 1. Rather, they realized that there was a deep and a spiritual need for a soulful restoration that God alone could provide for them. More than just a change in status or position in life, being made as actual freed men as opposed to slaves, they needed real spiritual liberty from sin and its dominion over them. And so they ended up crying out in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. The Negev. In other words, they were essentially saying, God, we've seen you do a mighty work before our eyes, but now we ask that you would do it again. We need to see your goodness and your faithfulness again, as if for the very first time. And so in light of the goodness of God, they realized that their inherent dryness in their own souls was there. 
and that they themselves could not quench that kind of dryness in and of themselves apart from God's grace. And nothing short of that. These people were familiar with this, with this idea of the covenant of grace. For after all, in Isaiah 55, which proclaims to God's own people, God invited them to taste and see of his grace and his goodness toward them, ultimately through Christ. Isaiah 55, which says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so these people knew, in light of such things, that God alone was the source of living water. Water that could actually satisfy their dry and weary souls. But they also knew, and this is so important to catch, that grace itself had already, as God's people, made inroads, deep inroads at that, into their lives over the years. Through, of all things, their suffering and the pains which they had already experienced. The hardships that they had endured as God's people. It was as if, figuratively speaking, gullies had been carved out within their own souls for grace to run down like water in a ditch down down to the deepest parts of their own souls in the most dire hour of need. And so these people who lived in the actual uh, nation-state of Israel were very familiar with the dryness of the surrounding area. Uh, where many of them lived, it was very fertile, and there were lots of uh, lots of vegetation and things of that nature. But not too far from them was this place in the south part of Israel called the Negev, which literally in Hebrew just means the south. Uh, and so uh, think like Texas or something, right? That kind of south, like that dry heat and all. Well, for them, the southern part of Israel was very much like that. And it is to this very day a very dry place, the Negev, the south. I actually went there a number of years ago, and this is around where the Dead Sea is, if, you've, um, if you're familiar with that. The Dead Sea, which is so filled with so much salt, salt deposits, that even the worst swimmer like myself could have the hardest time trying to even go under the water, because it just spits you right back up to the surface. You end up kind of bobbing a little bit, and you can't even stand up in the water because you end up floating around instead. Um, it's so weird, though, because... For as dry as that desert land is, even with the Dead Sea being there where nothing lives naturally around that area, you will, ironically enough, find little spots of foliage in the middle of the desert. It's so weird because you actually will find some greenery. And even citrusy kind of fruits like oranges and that kind of thing actually grow very well in that uh, environment. Because, irony of ironies, when there is a massive rainfall, Because of the ditches and the gullies and the natural irrigation that happens over time, water ends up finding its way down into particular points of interest. And so even in the Negev, even in the driest part of Israel in the south, water itself, when there was a massive rainfall, could actually water the area and bring forth life and foliage in the midst of what is otherwise a very deathly and desolate area. And so the people of Israel had this very picture in mind, this picture that when God were to provide a spiritual rainfall, so to speak, upon their lives, even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, he could certainly certainly bring forth life in the midst of those darkest of times. 
And so again, this is the picture that the Israelites had as they sang Psalm 126. And they said, in effect, God, do this restorative work again for us like you do, physically speaking, in the Negev, in the South. Do that, though, within our own souls. Do it within us. Make spiritual water, so to speak, flow into the very depths of our own soul by the irrigation that you've already done in us through the carving out, in many ways, of what we've experienced, even the most painful things. And do this by showing your mercies anew to us. For we know from Scripture that God's mercies are new every morning, and his faithfulness is always great toward us. Moving away from the text a little bit, I want us to bring us to a point of, of a little bit of introspection. Because we find ourselves here at the very end of 2020, a year that for many of us has been very tough and trying. And we're not blind to that. Many of us have experienced all kinds of suffering and trials, all kinds of things that have brought uh, real questions to our mind. A question of, God, how will you heal me? How will you restore me? How, you will, how will you heal and restore our church? How will you lead her forward in the midst of hardships? Well, for many of us, again, 2020 has been an incredibly difficult year. Met with both, in many ways, joys, all kinds of joys, and yet all kinds of sorrows alike. And so it reminds me, as I was thinking through this psalm, that dovetails both this idea of, of weeping and also rejoicing together in light of God's goodness, that when we do experience losses, rather than ignoring them, we ought to see them for what they are. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis once said. I think it was written in regard to, uh, in regard to J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, his good friend, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. When, when Tolkien actually passed away, I believe it was when Lewis wrote this statement that essentially to lose a dear friend, to lose someone or something that's so uh, integral to your own life, it's as if losing a part of your own soul because you'll never be able to regain that kind of relationship again here in this lifetime. And so for those of us who have suffered various losses of various kinds, we know that part of us is unable to be experienced again to the same degree in this lifetime. <clears throat> Thinking of that idea or that picture of, uh, of soil and, and plants and things of that nature that we see right here in this very text, you know, sowing the seed for soil, it reminds me of, uh, as I was even just a few days ago, uh, going through and repotting a few of my plants that I have around the house. I'm a little weird, and I have about a dozen plants, like house plants, all around my living room and kitchen area and bedroom and all. But um, as I was trying to make sure they all got proper sunlight and was uh, kind of separating some of them out and combining some of them into other plants, um, I ended up having to dig them up and make them a little uncomfortable for a couple days as I rewatered them and repotted them. Well, in many ways, as we are repotting things in our own lives, as we are uh, kind of tilling the soil, or for many of you who uh, live off the land, I know many of us here in Culpeper do that, um, and as you are tilling the ground and preparing it for uh, feeding off of the land eventually and having a harvest and a crop to have, tilling is so necessary. But the tilling itself of our own souls it can be so painful in many ways. Oftentimes we feel as God, our master gardener, is going to work in our own lives and figuratively speaking, uh, digging up the soil and the dirt, we look at it and we look at it in a very confused way. Like, what, what in the world are you going to do with this? 
It's all been uprooted. It's all been destroyed by every account. And yet in God's providence, he tills the ground of our own lives, of our own souls, even through hardships, to produce a crop that is all the more plentiful in time. And he does that for our good, ultimately. For all things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We know from Psalm 1, for instance, that we as God's beloved are not lost to him. We are actually like trees that are planted beside streams of living water that are purposed to bear its fruit in its proper time. And so some seasons we go through that we experience, we don't experience as much fruitfulness, and yet others we do. Sometimes we are met with unfavorable conditions and ailments and struggles of various kinds, both within us and outside of us alike. But the soil that God places us in, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what the circumstances are, God has purposed by his own hand to continue to use that to water us, to grow us, to bring us to full fruition in his time. So that do we not, though we do not understand it in full, or even in a large part, why we go through certain circumstances and things that arise around us, we as believers do well to accommodate ourselves to all of the uh, uh, dispensations of providence and be so suitably affected with them. As the theologian Matthew, Matthew Henry once said, who even commentated on this very psalm, he said this in regard to Psalm 126, For such harps are never more melodiously tunable than after such a melancholy disuse of these harps. The long want, in other words, of mercies, greatly sweetens their return. Uh, For those of you who might be musicians as well, you think of how tuning an instrument makes it sound all the better as opposed to picking it up where you left off last. So, in the same way, these things that the Lord sees us through in life. And so, friends, I want to bring us to a point of, of questions as well for our own selves as we move from 2020 into the new year, as we are reflective and yet equally also hopeful and optimistic about what the Lord will do and is already doing in our midst. And so, in essence, I want to ask ourselves and you all this question, and I'd ask that you would take this to heart. What are the goalies that have been carved out in your own life over the past year, or perhaps even over the last few months? What are the various conditions or personal experiences that you have carried and perhaps even felt weighed down by, even in recent times? But furthermore, as the family of God, as the people of Christ, the body of Christ, how might we, as this church here at Christ's Covenant, continue to come alongside each other as brothers and sisters to seek to care for one another in light of whatever it might be that we ourselves are going through individually. Well, Psalm 126, verses 5 through 6, instructs us in the the how-to, so to speak. The how-to go about doing this very thing. And so Psalm 126, verses 5 through 6, gives us this promise in light of such things. It says this, Those who sow in tears, meaning keep going forward, keep sowing, those who sow in tears, they shall reap with shouts of joy. Shouts of joy. 
He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, pressing forward, in other words, keeping on, keeping on, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves, his harvest, so to speak, with him home. See, the irony of all this talk about soil and weather conditions and even sowing seed here in the very last two verses of our passage is that every single part of this process of new growth is all a handiwork that is contingent upon God, the author and giver of life himself. In other words, God alone is the sovereign one in the act of tilling the ground around us and cultivating it and planting the seeds, which, though the seeds are as good as dead on their own accord, when planted and watered and put under the proper conditions for life, our purpose to bring forth life in God's own timing. God himself is the one who brings this to life and who maintains a healthy growth of the young plant to full fruition and harvest. And it's as uh, Rutherford said as well in one of his writings that grace often grows best in winter. It's often in the midst of hardships that God who gives the growth and life and vitality brings forth what he is doing in us to completion. The hardships that we go through are purpose to bring us through to wholeness in Christ. Christ is the very one who proves himself in these hard times as we as believers are in unison with him to be our resurrection in our life. Because Christ himself, when you think about it this way, he is, figuratively speaking, that seed that was sown and three days later, after he died, was risen again from the, from the grave. He himself, in his life and resurrection, as we are united to him, brings us, brings us life and resurrection. See, according to John 15, he himself is the true vine of whom we are all the branches of that vine. And as Isaiah 4 and Romans 11 both describe, he is the righteous branch of the Lord God, into whom all of us as believers are engrafted. For though Christ died for us, for our sins, he has been raised again to life, and so brings us life, everyone who is in him. So as we begin to close, people of God, know that God, our God, is not apathetic toward you. He's not apathetic toward his church, nor you as his beloved child. No matter the station that we find ourselves in, let us be so bold and confident as to come before the very throne of grace in our times of need, that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in those very times of need. Let us know that God, our God, has dealt with us in love through Christ chiefly, the resurrection and the life And that he has purposed every single one of our days to display his loving kindness toward us who are in Christ and with us by the streams of mercy that flow into the deepest parts of our own lives. By God's grace, let us recognize the ways in which the implanted word, the very word of Christ, the message of peace with God our Father through Christ's finished work upon the cross, is like a seed within our own souls that will eventually bear fruit. And that in the midst of our hardships and struggles, we will find him to be our source of joy, joy eternal. For church, to whom else can we go? Christ alone has the words of eternal life. 
And so with this in mind, let's come before our Lord and Savior Jesus in prayer. Father, we thank you that as we are a people who um, have been brought through so much, through the, the fire and the rain, through the flood and also the fires, figuratively speaking, as Isaiah talks about, we are people who have gone through hardships. We are people who have experienced uh, things that would uh, cause us to, to doubt and to, to find ourselves in places of, of places of longing, longing for restoration. And so God, as we come out of a place of both celebration, celebration of the very fact that you came to us, that you loved us and gave yourself for us, as we think back on Christmas just a couple days ago, but also out of places of hardships alike, as this season in our church's life has been difficult in many ways, would you cause us to be a hopeful people? Would you cause us to be a people that doesn't turn a blind eye to what we go through, that we would not try to euthanize our, our sufferings, nor try to, uh, to patronize the sufferings of other people, but rather to come alongside and to build up one another in love? God, for as simple as that message is of staying strong, of enduring through suffering, we know that it is you and you alone who can do this mighty work within us. And so, God, we ask that as we move into this new year, 2021, here in a couple days, that we would be excited for what you are doing here at Christ's Covenant. For, Lord, you are and you will be faithful to your church. God, what a joy it is to, to know, um, in small part, even for myself, the joy of, of the work that is to be done here in our community. Uh, even as Derek was just praying earlier that there are so many uh, lives, souls even, who have yet to hear the gospel here in our own midst. People who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus preached to them. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And so, God, we ask that we would be a community who is on mission together, a church that is ready and, and even excited and joyful when we realize the truth that the harvest is plentiful. And though, we might, though it might seem that the workers are indeed few, we recognize, God, that you have given us this wonderful task that you do through us this task of proclaiming your excellencies, the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so, God, we ask that you would continue to do a mighty work here in our own midst. Uh, God, as a church plant, would you grow us? Would you water us? Would you enliven us? Would you use the tilled-up soil around us for your purposes so that as the rainfall comes in your due time, to bring life and restoration, and even, we pray, growth to our own church, that you would do this in such a mighty way that you would receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. For the kingdom itself belongs to you, and we are simply recipients of your grace. Citizens of your kingdom, beloved children of you, our God. And so with these wonderful truths in mind, we pray all this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.